quotation is actually taken from our gospel lesson, a selected verses. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's our text. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, every time we have the opportunity to gather together on your word and sacrament, it's, it's a celebration of you. Do not allow the evil one, especially this night, to rob us of the very special attention of your word, especially when it comes to this holy meal that you set apart for us to strengthen and encourage us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So those of you who have been following me on Wednesday nights, I don't do Twitter or any of that other stuff, but I thought that'd be kind of a fun way to start. Um, you know that during the Wednesdays, we've been talking about the language of Lent. And for me as the pastor, uh, one of the things that I, I wonder sometime, and let's be open and honest, that people don't attend Lenten services as much this time as they did in earlier years. I wonder if they've just got out of the habit. I wonder if the world in which we live in is is has caught their attention. It's too busy. I also wonder if, well, maybe some of you think it's a waste of time, specifically because we use words and concepts that you kind of think you know, but maybe you don't. Things that are intimately connected with uh, the, the Lenten season, and yet do we throw them around in such a way that we haven't really connected all the dots? And so I, I thought I'd pick up some ideas that are very much a part of the Lenten season and make sure we have a good understanding of it. Case in point, Ash Wednesday, where we put ashes on our head. We are, hear the words, we are dust, and to dust we will return. What do we learn from that lesson is that Lent is a time to take into uh, consideration the fact that we're going to die someday. I don't mean to be morbid. I'm just throwing it out there. We only have a certain number of days left, and I don't know when it is. I don't know if you do either. But I want to make sure I number my days right. I don't want to get to the end and look back and go, wow, I wasted X number of years of my life because I wasn't taking my walk of faith seriously. 
What did I leave for my children to learn? What did I, I leave as a, they use the word legacy a lot, but the idea that I was a witness for God and people were blessed by it. I want to make sure I don't waste my time. Lent is a wonderful opportunity to do that. We also talked about Lent being about family. Uh, I think we really do, a, we, I, do a bad job because I often talk about what you're giving up for Lent or what you're taking on. And whenever you use the I'm giving up or I'm doing this, it gives you the idea that Lent is just about you. Uh, in one sense it is. If you're giving up candy and I'm not, um, that could be one of those things that's personal. But the, the thing you want to understand is that except the occasions where Scripture is really, really clear, I'm talking to Moses here, or I'm talking to Elijah here. When God's word comes out of his mouth, it's for all of his people at the same time. There's a unifying part of Lent for all of us to experience that we're a part of a family. Let's call it a church family. I, I think we take this for granted. I think we kind of say, oh, hi, these are people I, I, I see, I recognize in church. But do I sense that they're a player or I'm a player for them? God creates this environment of two or three are gathered in his name. He's the one that speaks to you when preaching is, is happening. And if you're convicted, what is the application for that conviction? Is it not your very brothers and sisters who are here with you today? Sadly, I, I think we've kind of lost that intimacy that's very much a part, not only of the Lenten journey, but all of church. We talked about penitence. Repentance is a, probably a better word to use. People think of repentance, they think what? Was Lent's about being sad and mourning you know, for 40 days about how miserable a person I am because I'm always repenting of my sins? Um, no. Repentance is, is more of a, a thought process. Why are we observing Lent? Well, Jesus died on the cross. What did he die for? He died for the sins of all people. My sins are included in that. Penitence just says, I want to understand I'm a sinner to the core. I have nothing to offer to God. And quite frankly, when it comes to my relationship with other people... I have not been put on this planet to judge you, to tell you what to do. Who am I to counsel you when I can't even listen to my own? When we have that thought process in place, our relationships change. I'm not sitting having a conversation with you waiting for you to stop talking so I can tell you what I think. I'm having a conversation because I want to listen to my brother or my sister. I want to understand. I don't judge because I'm worse than you are. I want to create a situation where because I know my sin and Jesus forgives me, who am I not to forgive others? We talked about fasting. And fasting itself is the giving up of food. But the way I talked about it was it's more the idea of self-discipline, self-control during Lent. This is where you have factor in, I'm giving something up. In fasting, it's food. But it isn't just food. It's the idea that Lent is a time where I, 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 I evaluate my priorities and I realize that there's some things that are occurring in my life that I don't control. They control me. 
Lent is a great time thinking about how Jesus gave up everything for me, for me to say, maybe I'm going to exercise control over this area of my life. Insert your area. And therefore, I, I demonstrate that I am not out of control. By God's grace and by his power of his spirit, I can actually exercise control in areas. Similar to that, we talked about foot washing. Um, it's not so much the foot washing, but on the night Jesus was betrayed, Jesus, the teacher, washed the feet of the disciples. Why? Because none of them wanted to wash the other people's feet. That would be selfless. And I don't want to be selfless in my service because then people, what, will start expecting that from me? I'm going to be the automatic foot washer from now on. Oh, Pastor Reimnitz is here. He'll do the foot washing. Why? Because he did it that one time. And so we kind of push back on selflessness. And when we do that, we find ourselves unable to see the needs of other people because we don't want to offer ourselves in straight-up service for them. You're here tonight, but there's other people here too that may just need a conversation from you. You don't know it, but that's where the, the Lord brings us together in family as we listen selflessly to each other and we start building a bond between us that is a representation, a very good illustration of what Jesus did when he died. And then last week we talked about, last Wednesday we talked about prayer. Um, Specifically using the prayer of Jesus in the garden. He had something he prayed to God about, which is about what he's, we're going to talk a little bit about what happens after we have our sermon tonight, this discussion about what's going to happen in the next few hours. But he ended every prayer with, not my will, but your will be done. And in Lent, it's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity to not be afraid of saying, God, thy will be done. I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid of the God who loves me, who forgives me, who cares for me. More than anything, I want to be faithful to him. And so our prayers aren't about me getting something from God. It's really about God having his way with me. And my prayers reflect that during Lent. Yeah, there was five minutes. Here's tonight's. We're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. My concern when it comes to the Lord's Supper is that it's too familiar to us. It's there. Other than the altar guild and maybe the pastor, I don't know how many of you even think about whether or not there's communion at a service or not. You show up, oh, there it is, okay. Do we ponder what actually is presented to us when it comes to the Lord's Supper? That's what we'll talk about now. When I was confirmed in the ninth grade, I went to communion because I earned the right. I was confirmed. I went frequently, honestly, because Leslie Larson used to sit in the front. I would sit in the back, and so I wanted to be around when she would go up and go back to her chair so I could look at her. Uh, actually, that's the reason I started ushering, too. And then I'd always usher on the side that Leslie Larson sat on. This isn't being recorded, is it? Um, it, it? Real shallow when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Uh, college, I didn't really, really practice. Uh, 
took it for granted. I'd show up if it, if it was there. I, I went. If I didn't, not much more of a thought other than that. It wasn't until I became a pastor where it occurred to me one of the most wonderful experiences is to be a part of sharing the Lord's Supper with God's people. Sunday, but specifically for people that can't come to church, the shut-ins. For whatever reason, they're not here, and it's not necessarily because COVID. A lot of times, we're getting closer to death. And so, Pastor Prem and myself, what we do is we go visit. We share God's word, and we commune with them. We'll say the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer. I throw the benediction and the 23rd Psalm in there. But the Lord's Supper is always a part of it. And these men and women have lived their lives on the Lord's Supper. What I mean by that is they got to a point where the Lord became a necessary part of their faith. They couldn't go without it. Sadly, uh, especially when I first got started, there were a couple of times where people would call me on the phone. Hi, Pastor, how are you doing? Fine. Can you come over and give me communion now? Oh, it's been okay, yeah. That way, can I come over right now? Uh, you, sometimes you lose track of it, but they don't lose track of it. Why? This is the Lord's Supper we're talking about. This is this wonderful gift that the Lord personally gave to his children. Now, in our text tonight, recorded in St. Matthew, we have this, the poignant celebration of the Lord's Supper ever shared before, because this is Jesus doing it for the first time. And what's interesting is if you can step back a little bit from the mechanics of the meal and understand this, Jesus knew what was going on and what was about to happen. And in light of that, he willingly gave us this meal. His disciples, you and me. Now, it's on the night when he was betrayed, which we say a lot, but do you understand that what's about to happen? You know the story of Judas? It's the betrayal of one of the 12. Going to turn him in. Boy, if anyone's going to hell, it's that Judas guy because of what he did. Now, the rest of the disciples, what? Do they get a pass on that one? Hmm. Where were the other disciples after the garden? We know that John and Peter, they went to the court of the high priest. And that's where Peter got into his problems. But where were the other nine Judas, of course, was off doing this stuff. So there's nine of them. Where are they? We don't know where they are. What we do know is this. Uh, a synonym for um, uh, betrayal isn't just uh, exposing somebody to danger. In the case of Judas, where's Jesus at so we can get him? But a synonym is also to break one's promise, to be disloyal, unfaithful. Were the disciples being unfaithful, disloyal? I think so. Here's the, and it's not like this just happened. For months, Jesus has been telling these guys, I'm going to Jerusalem, 
and I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. I will be tortured. I will be crucified and died. And on the third day, I'm not going to rise again. Many of those were out there. And yet, here we are in Jerusalem for the last time triumphal entry and all that. Jesus has spent all week talking about the end times. You think one of them would say, hey, is this the time? Is something going to happen here? We have the benefit of the rest of the story. Maybe we can cut the disciples some slack, I guess, that they were blissfully ignorant, even though they should have known everything. So it shouldn't surprise us when they were caught off guard by the arrival of the troop with Judas that they all ran for the hills. They all looked out for themselves. They hadn't thought it through. And so their response was selfish. They deserted Jesus in his time of need. But this isn't about the disciples as much as it is about Jesus. Jesus was deeply aware when he took the Passover meal and gave it to us in the form of his body and blood. He was aware not only of what his disciples would do or won't do, but also what we would or what we would not do. And yet he still gave it. He still took the bread of the Passover meal which celebrated up to that time the greatest act of deliverance when God led the children of Israel out of the land of slavery to the promised land. And he says, this bread, that's my body. The cup after supper, that cup, that is my blood. It's almost like he's leaving behind a a last will and testament here. He was preparing his disciples, and quite frankly, he was preparing us for his departure. And that preparation included this meal. What Jesus would leave behind on that first Holy Thursday was a new covenant, a covenant in his blood, in his body, given and shed for the forgiveness of sins given and shed for the forgiveness of sins. People, that's pure That's pure gospel. Gospel is what God does for us. His disciples and we, um, we are going to receive this gospel in a very real, tangible way. Not only that first Monday, Thursday, but every time they broke bread together in the name of Jesus, always receiving what the body and blood gives, the forgiveness of sins, the promise of everlasting life, the comfort and the peace that God has this in control. On this night so many years ago, we have, and as we have so often, we have this privilege of receiving this gift. That's what's happening one for us by Jesus when he died on the cross. And it truly is a precious treasure. Forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. The Lord's Supper is pure gospel. 
It's what God does for lost and condemned people. How unfortunate it is that some to whom Jesus gave this gift turned out not having a hunger or thirst for it. That happens in our day too. Jesus says, do this often in remembrance of him. But even on that night, Jesus foresaw many who would not. Now, I've really enjoyed Pastor Prem's sermons on Sunday. And since he's not preaching on this topic, because he doesn't preach till Easter, I decided to quote a little Luther tonight. Luther says some very important things when it comes to the Lord's Supper. The first is this. No one should by any means be forced or compelled to go to the sacrament. I need your help with this one. I prayed about it before I came into the pulpit, how I was going to shape my words. But no matter how I thought them through, if somebody wants to be offended, they can. If somebody wants to hear what I'm about to say in such a way that I'm telling you how often you should go or not, I'm not intending to do that. It's not my job. So what we want to do is we want to step back and explore what we have been given to be able to think about what is that sacrament about and what is it there for when it comes to my benefit. Now, Luther also says, uh, indeed, those who are true Christians and value the sacrament, precious and holy, will drive and move themselves to go to it. Do you see the tension here? On the one hand, we're not to compel anybody to go, but if you're a true Christian and value the sacrament, precious and holy, guess what you're going to do? That in and of itself will drive and move you to go to the sacrament. But I'm not trying to compel you. I want you to understand it because I fervently believe the more you understand it, the more important it becomes to you. I want to encourage you to to look for a sense that you need the sacrament, that inside of you, you'll pay attention to when the last time you had it or when is it going to be offered. Why? Because I need it. I want it. I want to be there. Why? Because of what it is. It's pure gospel in real life form. Before our very eyes, God doing what God does. Forgives, restores, comforts. That's what we have. The danger we have when it comes to communion is is if somebody purposely withdraws from it. Can that happen? Well, it, it, it can. And sometimes in the most innocent ways. Let's say you get sick. And, oh, you're sick for a couple of weeks, maybe a month. You're taking responsibility for your sick. You don't want to go to church and infect somebody. But about the time you start feeling better, you realize nobody from church called. Nobody loves me. I don't even know why I go to that church anymore. They call themselves Christian? I don't think so. So we stay away another week. Another, then it becomes something where, oh boy, I've been gone so long, I don't know what it's going to be like if I go back. That would be weird. So we stay away. And over time, what can happen is our hearts become callous 
and cold to the Lord's Supper. It's not like we don't know what it is, but it doesn't have the meaning that Jesus intended for it to have for us. So to avoid any of that to happen, we want to examine our hearts and the, our consciences so that we don't get cold, but instead we desire the gift that Jesus offers in his body and blood, and all the more. Now, some will say, I don't go to the sacrament because I'm not prepared. Maybe you thought that sometimes. The weird thing about that is we're viewing the sacrament as if it's something that we do. And if it's something we do, then it's quite natural that you're going to think, well, I'm not prepared. i got to do something before I can go. And I didn't do it. And because I didn't do it, I shouldn't go to the Lord's Supper. It's just a weird thought when it comes to Jesus' plan. We're never going to feel worthy. You're never going to be prepared in your brain. So much so that you didn't sin all week. You feel pretty confident about yourself. Now I'm worthy to come to the Lord's Supper. That day will never come. And plus you're not coming for the reason that Jesus intended. Luther writes, This sacrament does not depend upon our worthiness. We are not baptized because we are worthy and holy, nor do we go to confession because we are pure and without sin. On the contrary, we go because we are poor, miserable people. We go exactly because we are unworthy. So if I think the sacrament or my attendance of the sacrament is something I do for it, I'm starting in the wrong place. I'm already not understanding the intent and really the gift that God has given to us. I'm sure we can all join Luther by saying, I indeed would like to be worthy, but I come not upon any worthiness, but upon your word, because you have commanded it. I come as one who would gladly be your disciple, no matter what becomes of my worthiness. You see, it's God's word, the compelling of the gift that creates the environment where we say, yeah, I want to be there. And Jesus saw all this playing out on the night he was betrayed, the night he instituted this meal. We come because of his promise. Take it, this is my body given into death for you. Take drink. This cup is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection are yours. He gives them to you. If you're heavy laden or you're burdened with life, you feel weakness. That's when you go. Because you're thinking so much about yourself that you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. Communion. The Lord's Supper says it's not about you. It's about what Jesus did for you. And that's what we remember. I'm but a stranger here. Heaven's my home. Holding on too tightly to the things of this world will bring you down. But holding on to those things, those promises of God are comforting.
Again, if you wait to get rid of all your burdens, you're never going to come back to the supper because you're never going to get rid of them all. Life isn't about escaping. Christianity is not about escaping burdens and suffering. Christianity is about understanding how we process the sufferings and burdens of life in light of God's rich gift of grace that he tangibly gives us in this holy meal. Now, Luther would say, for some of you, that's not enough. So he came up with three practical down-to-earth questions for you to ask yourself when it comes to considering coming to the Lord's table. If you don't realize what it's there for, then there's no better counsel than for you to either slip your hand in through your shirt, don't do that right now, maybe you could just touch your skin. Do you feel skin? Can you take your pulse? Are you physically alive? You should be going to communion. Communion is given to you in that condition because it ignites, it sparks, it builds up and encourages the faith that God has given to you as you sort through this physical life that you have. If that doesn't work, then Luther suggests that what we do is we look at the world around us and see whether you are also in the world. A lot of time during Lent, we've talked about that. The influence of the culture in which we live in. I'm sure you have cable and internet, watch TV, listen to the radio. Whenever you turn it on, have you paid attention to what actually is there? Understand that these are scripted programs for the most part. Somebody is saying, I want you to think about this. I want you to watch this. You don't get a good movie today, not one that's going to rake in any money if it's not an R movie. How do you get an R movie? Nudity and or some sexual act that happens in the movie. That makes it an R, boom. Now I want to go to it. Nobody wants to go to a G unless you got the grandkids. A GP, I don't even know if they would go to that one. The world is out there trying to grasp your attention. They're trying to get you to redefine words that you use. Redefine ways of thinking about things. Changing dictionary words. Making up new words. And do you find yourself compelled to listen to it? Because if you don't listen to it, if you don't respond to it, you're going to get a reaction. And so you keep your mouth shut. Is that you? Are you aware of that kind of influence? If so, move yourself to come to the table. Remind yourself of God's story that transcends the culture in which we live in. Remind yourself of the fight, the battle that has already taken place for your soul and receive the nourishment that he generously gives to you and thus build up the strength inside of you to resist those temptations because you have something that is more valuable than gold. Now, if none of that works, he has one more suggestion. And that is, consider the devil. The devil is real, and he's still out there. What the devil seeks to do, always has, is to lie about God's word in such a way you actually think it's God's word. 
His goal is to distort, to lead you away from God. How come God doesn't hear my prayer? Where in the Bible does it say God answers all your prayers the way you pray them? Oh, but he should hear your prayer, right? Where does that come from? It comes from the evil one. Luther wrote, if you could see how many knives, darts, and arrows are every moment aimed at you, you'd be glad to come to the sacrament as often as possible. It's at the sacrament that Satan's voice is silenced. That's what happened on the night Jesus was betrayed. He gave his life silencing the voice of Satan. All Satan can do is lie to you. All he can do is seek to distort Cause you to fear. And yet the sacrament takes all of that away. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, Jesus saw this night. And he gave you this great gift and treasure. It was his very body and blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. He gave it to us. When we are weary and heavy laden with sin, And right now, this night, in our real lives and in our real world, the offer is there once again for you to come and receive the pure gospel of Jesus in the bread and wine, the body and blood of Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.